Our friends at the New Republic have recently introduced The Politics of Everything, hosted by TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and staff writer Alex Perrine. The podcast explores the intersection of culture, politics, and media. You can find The Politics of Everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts, like ours. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Is $1,200 an amount that matters to you? An amount that could carry you through a month or two after you've been let go? Unlike during the 2008 financial crisis, the Federal Reserve, an institution that sounds important but also disconnected from everyday life, has been moving quickly to address the economic fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak. In the April issue, Christopher Shaw argues that it's more often than not that the Fed has been on the side of the people, not the bankers. Still, he says it's worrying how little accountability there is and suggests that elected representatives should have more control, which would in turn give ordinary people more influence over monetary policy. I spoke to Shaw about the changes the Fed has made during the pandemic and how the often overlooked agency has significantly altered the nation's economy. The Federal Reserve is one of the least understood institutions in American government. Quite frankly, it's hard to even understand if the Fed is a part of the government, even though it's one of the most powerful components of it. So let's start with the basics. What is the Fed? Why was it created? And what are its main powers? So the Fed is the you know, full name, the Federal Reserve System, and it's really kind of a set of different layers uh, within this one institution. So the Federal Reserve System is the overall entity, but then within that, there are the Federal Reserve Banks. And there's 12 Federal Reserve Banks, and they're located in major cities uh, across the country, New York being the, the largest of, of these. And then there's something called the Federal Reserve Board or the Fed Board, uh, technically the Board of Governors. And it is in Washington, D.C., and it makes sort of the policy decisions for the system as a whole. So that's what the Fed is. So when you say Fed, it actually means a lot of, a lot of different things at once. And it was created because... The banking system uh, needs to have a bank for itself in order to function. Specifically, the reason that was created was the panic of 1907. So this is a depression that happens uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century. And this depression was caused by a crisis in the banking system. And this wasn't the first time this had happened. There had been crises in the banking system really throughout the 19th century. So people were aware that this was a, a real issue, a serious problem. And after 1907, there really started to be an impetus to take steps to do something about it and to create a central bank. And at this point also, the U.S. was really uh, an anomaly internationally because you know other nations, nations of America considered its peers at the time in Europe, they had central banks. And so that's why there began to be a campaign to get a central bank up and running. Now, there was disagreement about the central bank. So on the one hand, you had 
bankers who wanted a central bank because when there was bank runs and a banking crisis, they wanted to have an institution they could go to that would lend to them and give them reserves so that they would be able to keep functioning. Um, and that's the primary reason they were interested in, in this. But on the other side, you had a lot of ordinary citizens who were concerned what this might mean. And specifically, they were worried about this centralized financial power that already existed in the United States at that time and how this might magnify that and increase it. So, you know, the idea that Wall Street can be a very powerful influence that's not very accountable was certainly one that people were very much aware of in the early 20th century. And they're thinking that this might even magnify that uh, even more. And the kind of people I'm talking about here, it's a lot of well, working people. I mean, it's electricians, bricklayers, railroad workers, and also uh, farmers. There was a lot of grassroots interest in these uh, financial issues at the time. I've written a book uh, recently published called Money, Power, and the People, the American Struggle to Make Making Democratic, and it really explains all this and, and, how it, and how it worked. But what this meant is that there's conflict between a group that wants the Federal Reserve to be a government institution, so it'll be publicly accountable, and then the bankers who wanted it to just be literally their bank, their institution that, that they control. And so there's this uh, political conflict that unfolds after 1907 and finally culminates in 1913 with the Federal Reserve Act. And the Federal Reserve Act is what sets up the Fed structure I was just describing. And the reason why the Federal Reserve is kind of an unusual institution is because of this conflict, this political conflict, where you have a Fed that's actually privately owned. The Federal Reserve banks are run by bankers, but then the Federal Reserve system is overseen by the, by the Board of Governors, uh, the Fed Board. And the members of that body are appointed by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. So it's got this dual public-private nature. And right from the very beginning, that's baked in. And that comes out of this political conflict and sort of just basic disagreement about how uh, this institution should work. And that's there right off the bat. So we all know Trump, quote, regrets hiring the current Fed chair, Jerome Powell, but the only senator who opposed his appointment was Elizabeth Warren. And she said that he would be bad for working families and that he would likely undo the incremental changes that had been made in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Before the outbreak, would you say that her critique was borne out in the decisions that he made? Yeah, so Trump is very unusual in terms of his method of criticizing the Fed. You know, we've all seen how Twitter is his go-to device and the name-calling. I mean, there was little Marco Rubio and low-energy Jeb Bush and uh, recently mini Mike Bloomberg. And I don't think Jerome Powell has a nickname, but he certainly was willing to go at him very publicly. And what Trump wanted was he wants to keep interest rates low because he wants the economy to have that monetary stimulus because he wants to get reelected in 2020. And Elizabeth Warren is worried that Powell will be privileging the interests of financial institutions, which might mean that actually he is raising rates 
when it's perhaps not necessary to do so. So in a weird way, uh, Warren and Trump are kind of in agreement that they want to keep rates low, um, although they come from very different places here in terms of why they want that and how, you know what it, what it means to them. And the thing about Powell is that he's actually, I would say, amongst people on the left like Warren, a very pleasant surprise in terms of his sensitivity to the fact that when you start raising rates, it's going to increase unemployment. It's going to make things tougher for workers in terms of putting their bargaining position they have because it begins to slow the economy down potentially. And Powell actually really sort of maintained this kind of new development, which is a greater concern with these issues that definitely begins to emerge under his predecessor, uh, Janet Yellen. And so certainly Trump is not new in in criticizing uh, the head of the Fed, but the way that he does it is uh, certainly been been very new. But then he's acted in lots of ways that are new and quite unprecedented. The main argument of your piece is that historically, the Fed acts less in the interests of the banking class and more in the interests of common Americans. Quote, when its relationship with elected officials provides some measure of political responsiveness, end quote. What pressures would you say the Fed is primarily reacting to right now as it tries to mitigate the impact of the coronavirus? How would things be different in a scenario where there was more political responsiveness? Well, I think at this point, we're in the middle of a crisis, and basically the Fed is just doing anything and everything it can think of in order to stop this crisis. And there's sort of agreement on all parties that it needs to happen. And so anything the Fed can do to prevent, you know, potentially a depression is going to benefit both people who are, you know, bankers, so people who are like, you know, lending money and people who are workers. So everybody's sort of in the boat together in this in this crisis to to an extent. So there's just a lot of agreement about that. And uh, the Fed has, right from the outset, it signaled that it was going to do whatever needed to be done. I mean, when it lowered interest rates to near zero um, a few weeks back, that signaled, okay, we're taking this really seriously. And then they've gone on and they've been purchasing large, large quantities of bonds, uh, treasury bonds, mortgage-backed bonds, lending really heavily to to banks, um, offering credit to foreign central banks um, in case they're having a, a shortage of, of dollars. And all of this is designed to present, prevent the financial system from, from breaking down. So that was sort of the second thing that they did. And then now they're actually looking almost less like a, a central bank in certain ways. I mean, we're really in uncharted waters here where they've taken emergency authority to set up programs to lend money to potentially municipal governments and businesses, um, money market funds, just lots of things that the the Fed really wasn't set up to deal with, certainly when it was founded back in back in 1913. Right. And the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act, has been has really sweeping benefits. Uh, Everybody's probably gotten their check by now. But there's also a loan program for businesses where basically if you are able to document how all the money was spent, you don't have to pay the loan back, which is just incredible. And it is allowing businesses to mitigate the situation and do their payrolls. 
What's also remarkable is that all of these changes have been implemented much, much faster than changes were during the 2008 financial crisis. What do you think we should expect to see next? I mean, the Fed is getting very creative very fast. I don't know what other things they may come up with at this point, but they're essentially saying we're going to backstop the whole economy. Like we are going to make money available wherever it's needed. And that's what they're doing. So they're moving in all directions. I mean, making credit available to all kinds of potential areas of the economy and supporting all sorts of of money markets. Um, They've moved very fast because I think the, to a certain extent, 2008 probably served as a dry run where it gave them some experience uh, with the idea that a crisis like this can can happen and, and can happen fast and they want to get ahead of it. They definitely want to be be ahead of things. Yeah, but at this point, the, the magnitude of it is much larger than it was in response to the financial crisis in 2008. And it's also just expanding much, much quicker too. You mentioned some recent proposals that would make the Fed more accountable, including making board members of the Federal Reserve Bank's presidential appointees, reducing the terms of Fed governors, and adjusting those terms so that they align with uh, election cycles. What quarters are those proposals coming from? And what changes would you most like to see implemented that haven't yet been proposed? So once we're out of this this crisis again, which who knows you know when that will 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 be, um, at that point the Fed will try to get back to something appro- approximating normal operations again, and so that's when the questions of reform will presumably emerge uh, again. And what the basis of these reforms? They're kind of coming from two different political places. One is a very libertarian one, so associated with someone like Ron Paul, who really doesn't think you should have a Federal Reserve system at all. Yeah, and um, the Fed. Like to, it's so catchy. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it is. And um, he would like to go back to the, the gold standard. And then there's others who would like banks to just issue their own money unregulated by the government. So there's this group that wants to go in a totally unregulated direction. The other criticism is from the other side of the political spectrum, and it's people like uh, Bernie Sanders um, has had a working group that put together some of these ideas, and their concern is really a a pattern that you see emerging in the late 70s, early 80s, and continuing pretty much up to the financial crisis in 2008, at which point, again, you go into an emergency and we essentially had interest rates being zero, basically up till uh, 2018. And the concern there is that the Fed has tolerated a level of unemployment that is just higher than it was, say, in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s. And the thing about the theory behind this is that you have inflation when you have people with more money trying to buy goods. It's going to drive up the prices of goods. So in order to prevent inflation, what you need to do is essentially take money out of the hands of consumers. And one way to do that is to slow down the economy a bit. But this leads to unemployment. This leads to things that undercut the bargaining power of workers. And this sort of newer policy begins under uh, Paul Volcker, who was appointed by Jimmy Carter in 1979 to, to run the Fed. And this was a time of very high inflation. And he felt we needed to do something about it. 
And one thing he wanted to do was sort of adjust the expectations of, of workers. And so that begins to happen. And the way the Fed begins to operate is that we do see a higher tolerance for, for unemployment. And so for someone like Sanders, who's worried about uh, the bargaining position of workers, especially in a time when we have you know, this rising inequality we've seen over the last few decades, and this, the Fed presumably plays a role in this, he wants to make it so that in terms of whose ideas are present when these decisions are made at the Federal Reserve, it's a broader group, and it's more reflective of America as a whole, and it's more reflective of the interests of, of working-class people. And so this is why he wants to do things like having the terms of the people who serve on the Federal Reserve Board sink in with uh, election cycles so that they would be more accountable because then you could have someone come in and appoint the, the folks that they, that they wanted. He wants to have the Government Accountability Office come in and uh, the ability to audit the Fed so that you can have more transparency and see exactly what the Fed has, has done. He wants to have the minutes where the meetings where these decisions are made. At this point, they're embargoed for five years. He'd like to have that reduced so we'll have a better handle on what the Fed is thinking, why it's doing what it's doing, and sort of where it thinks things are going. So these are the kinds of reforms that are being discussed. Now, at a time of crisis like this, you know, these things kind of are not uh, at the forefront of the, the conversation, but hopefully we will get back to normal at some point. And then these are the, the kinds of questions that are relevant today. And they've really been relevant ever since the, the founding of the Fed, because it's always a trade-off between, I mean, who's benefiting here? I mean, these are political decisions where there are winners and there are losers and how that works is something that people would like to see more accountability and more democracy here, because you do have this very powerful government agency, but not entirely a government agency because it is, you know, privately owned, but it just does not operate within the standard structure of democratic governance that the rest of the government does operate under. Do you feel like that because it is half private, half public, and that because economic policy is really dry, people don't pay attention to the Fed unless the economy is melting down? Or is it, as you just mentioned, a, a problem of transparency? I guess I haven't seen a lot of evidence of the Fed being interested in opening up the doors and welcoming in people, you know. I mean, William Grider wrote a famous book published in the 80s called Secrets of the Temple about the Federal Reserve and about how it does operate in an opaque way. And somehow, you know, this managed to become a bestseller, right? So I think that people can get interested in this, but it's true. It's not a topic that is uh, what people necessarily want to talk about right away. One interesting thing, though, that, that I found in, in my research, in, in my book, Money, Power, and the People, is that in the early 20th century, there really was a lot of interest in all of these banking issues and all of these financial issues in the Federal Reserve System. And it's that grassroots interest among uh, working people that really drove a lot of these reforms. I mean, I was describing earlier how it influenced the shape of the Federal Reserve System itself. It also led to reforms like the creation of the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which means that our bank deposits are safe. That was actually a new thing that came into being in the 1930s. And the bankers really did not want to have the FDIC, actually, because Big they surprise. thought it was interfering in their <laughs> business. Yeah. And once you have the FDIC, this means you don't have 
banking panics anymore. I mean, the Federal Reserve comes in to address this and it helps, but it's the FDIC that really puts a stop to that. Uh, we just don't have it in the same way. Also, mortgages. It used to be in the early 20th century, if you could get a mortgage for five years, you were lucky. I mean, the 30-year mortgage only becomes standard after New Deal reforms. Um, there's similar adjustments are made in terms of reforms that help uh, farmers get credit. So there's a lot of issues here where it was grassroots interest and involvement that was driving it and led to the reforms that made a financial system that in the middle of the 20th century was actually stable and operated pretty well. And a lot of the things we still depend on today come out of this, but we just don't have that same interest later in the, in the 20th century. And in part, that's because of the successes that we had earlier in the 20th century. Once these issues seem to be addressed and resolved, people are not as interested in it anymore. Now, I think there is growing interest again because of the moment we're living through right now, because of what happened in, in 2008. And, you know, you can see that obviously with Occupy Wall Street and also the popularity of figures like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who do talk about these questions. The savings and loan crisis of the late 80s, early 90s was maybe a sort of foreshadowing of this. But as the financial system has become more deregulated, as the Federal Reserve System has shown less concern for uh, working people, uh, these issues are, are reemerging again, and we're seeing new interest in it uh, right now. Richard Nixon, when he was facing re-election in 1972, put pressure on Arthur Burns, the Fed chair at the time, to, quote, goose the economy, which helped Nixon win the election, but also helped bring about a recession. The story seems to illustrate how making the Fed more responsive to the president, which is what Trump wants, isn't quite the same as making it more accountable to the American people. Is there any way to create a more directly democratic relationship between voters and the Fed? I mean, the Nixon example would be a great case of why making the Fed directly accountable to the president would present problems. Lyndon Johnson one time had the chair of the Fed over to his ranch in central Texas and kind of pinned him against the wall after he'd raised interest rates. You know, Johnson was a, was a big guy and uh, could be kind of intimidating. And then he took him on a Jeep ride across rugged terrain where the guy was literally terrified that he might die. George H.W. Bush complained about the Fed in a State of the Union address once. So lots of people have, have complained before. I think uh, the thing about the Fed is that it's really a creation of Congress. And one way you could do this and get around having just the one individual, the president, having, you know, say and still have uh, political uh, accountability, democratic uh, transparency, would be to give the Congress the ability to have more oversight over the Fed to be able to perhaps review Fed policy decisions, maybe not at that minute, but down the road, if the Fed just decided to, say, create a recession, which it did in the early 1980s, then at some point, Congress could come in and essentially tell the Fed to stop. But I think the main thing we want to do is just make it so the Fed is hearing from lots of people who are not bankers or businessmen. And so you can do this by having more accountability to Congress. You can do it by having uh, within the Fed itself structures that will mean that it will hear from, from other folks, citizens, workers, farmers, these other people, uh, civic organizations. 
I mean, there would be a way to get all these voices in there, in the room, around the table when these decisions are being made, because they're decisions that are important to all of us. They have a bearing on all of our lives, and we all should have input in it. And I think we should have more input in it than we have had. I think it's a problem when you have this economy that matters to us all, and you have the nation's largest economic regulator, and it doesn't have that kind of accountability that it should. I will say that it has, there's signs that things are getting a little better um, under uh, Janet Yellen and now actually under Powell. Sarah Bloom Raskin, for instance, who was a member of the, the Board of Governors, she actually went kind of undercover to an unemployment uh, jobs fair and posed to some of those unemployed to just get a better sense of, of what's going on. And that kind of perspective is valuable and that kind of perspective should be there. And so the more ways we can try to make that happen, I think the better it's going to be for creating an economy that, that works for everyone, works for all Americans. So there's this myth that the stock market, if the stock market does well, the rest of the economy does well. And that's clearly not the case, but the myth persists nevertheless. Why is that? That's a good question. I mean, definitely the stock market and the Dow Jones in particular are much overinflated in terms of their bearing on the overall economy. I mean, when you hear President Trump these days talk about, you know, as if the stock market is the indicator for potentially public health issues as well. So, I mean, it, it is true that at this point, a majority of Americans do own stocks because of the way that uh, defined benefit pension plans have been eliminated and we've been shifted into having 401ks and individual retirement accounts. So it does have some bearing on our lives, but it doesn't have nearly as much bearing as a lot of other indicators that get ignored, like like the unemployment rate, like you know just how expensive it is to buy important consumer goods that we need. And these aren't paid attention to nearly as much. And I guess I would say there's a whole industry around the stock market in terms of business reporting, where you have the Wall Street Journal, you have CNBC, and it's just baked into the way that we process information that the stock market is is put front and center. And I don't think that it's somehow uh, not related to the fact that amongst people who do have a lot of money and who are very powerful, the stock market is of prime importance. And um, so I think that's a reality too. There aren't very many labor reporters these days but there are certainly a lot of reporters and anchor persons and everyone else who is reporting on, on the stock market. And it's a problem. It really is in terms of giving us the information we need to understand the economy and how the economy really works. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 